0: go to shopify.com/income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered jumbacasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon, and scholarships are available. Check out MagicalMysteryCamp.com to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 117. We're really excited to be bringing you this interview with Katie Turr. We're going to talk to her about her fish fandom, her fish experience, and of course her book that comes out September 12th, which is called Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History, which focuses on her coverage of the 2016 campaign and particularly her covering now President Trump. We wanted to thank Jeff Carroll, who's a longtime listener and supporter of the podcast, for introducing us to Katie and for helping to make this happen. It's been um, it's been a long time in the works and we really appreciate Jeff's efforts. So thanks, Jeff. And I want to thank Matt uh, and our team who has taken a a lot of time putting this together in terms of the planning, the execution, the editing. And um, so everything you hear is is the good work of of Matt. So thanks, Matt. And thanks to our team for pulling together what we think is a pretty fun and interesting interview. You can follow us on Twitter at HFpod. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at helpingfriendlypodcast at gmail.com. We hope you enjoy this interview with Katie and keep on rocking. everyone so we're here with katie tour who um as as most people know is a a fish fan and a journalist um she um hosts mbc msnbc live with katie tour on um at two o'clock eastern every day katie is that right
3: that is correct
2: cool well thank you for joining us i'll Um, try
3: to i'll try not to have my my news voice too often people say (laughs) people criticize me and say you're using your news voice i'm gonna try to be normal
2: well, um, Katie, thank you for joining, and I'm here with Matt and Jonathan as well. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, especially during this um, um, busy news day, week, month, year uh, that we're in. We appreciate you taking the time, and, and I, I would also note that in addition to the the show that you do every day at 2, um, you you do fill in on MTP Daily and MSNBC um, once in a while, and you also on September 12th will be um, – putting out your first first book, right? Unbelievable. Well, we do want to obviously talk to you about the book. And, um, and I know there's a little bit of a a fish sort of book story, which we'll get into. But we always start um, asking our guests just a little bit about your background. Um, I think maybe in this case, just how how your um, career path has evolved. And then, um, you know, how that led to your your current position, being a broadcast journalist.
3: Okay, so I am um, a grew up in Los Angeles, and my parents were helicopter journalists. They were uh, the ones who found O.J. first on that slow speed pursuit, and they were the ones who um, captured the L.A. riots and the beating of the, of the gravel truck driver named Reginald Denny. They, they essentially oh. popularized um, helicopter news reporting in in L.A. So I grew up in this in this wild way where we were never at home and most of my childhood was spent um, in the air, hovering over Los Angeles and learning about all the various cities and how everybody in LA had an amazing backyard pool except us. And I wondered why we couldn't have one. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it was just, it was like this just wild, totally um, unique childhood. And I, um, as I got older and as I was a teenager, I, thought it was, you know, really boring and really, and really annoying and really, uh, embarrassing because my parents weren't normal, like everyone else's friends. They would like buzz my baseball games in the helicopter and, and yell out at me over the loudspeaker. And I just thought it was the most mortifying
4: the world. Oh, That sounds amazing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Except for when you're like 12 and you're, and you just want to blend in.
4: <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> so, and I just was an idiot. Like kids are idiots. So, um, I I had no desire to be in the news business. Um, And I went to college and I thought I would do something a little bit more stable, um, a little bit more predictable. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a doctor, but I quickly got weeded out of being a doctor. And then I was a philosophy major and I I loved that. But then I, you know, when faced with the prospect of of taking the LSAT and, and three more years of schooling. I just was like, I can't do this any longer. I need, I need to be outside. I can't be inside trapped behind a desk all day. And I was driving back to college with my, my college boyfriend and, um, I went to UC Santa Barbara. So I'm driving from Los Angeles up to Santa Barbara and we go through Malibu and the roads were blocked off because there was a huge brush fire. And I, um, always had a press pass on me and, and I say press pass loosely because my, my father, um, <laughs> forged a press pass for me. He took my grandmother's old press pass and just pasted my name over it. Her name was Judy Tur, And it's a, it's a felony to impersonate somebody else who just pasted my picture over most of the letters of her name. So it just was why to her. And, um, I, there was a sheriff blocking the road and I said, um, uh, you know, I, 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 need to get in there. My crew is up ahead. And the sheriff just, I mean, he looked at me and he was just like, this girl is very clearly lying. She's who is she? She's very young. And this press pass is very clearly fake. Um, and he asked me a couple questions which I answered and then he let me through. And my boyfriend at the time looked at me and just said, you know, I've never seen you more confident than you were right then lying to that officer. <laughs> And I thought, gosh, I should probably, I should probably pursue news. It's more exciting. I mean, who else would want to just go up to a fire line just so they can see it? Not for any other reason. <laughs> um, and that's when I started on my news journey, which brought me from Los Angeles to New York and had me um, carrying my own camera and editing my own pieces in the, in the Bronx and Brooklyn, covering a lot of um, inner city stories and a lot of community stories. And then I was Chasing tornadoes for the Weather Channel, and then I uh, I uh, got into NBC and, and went overseas, and then I started chasing the uh, the hurricane of the Trump
4: campaign. <laughs> so uh, disaster journalism, basically.
2: That's amazing. It's it's interesting though how often life brings you to the <laughs> the things that you you said you never want to do or you never th- imagined yourself doing, and then there you are so that's a it's an interesting story and I'm sure that that's part of the the book too um have you uh considered that it was um
4: their footage that played it that gave us the o j show from fish in ninety four
3: i you know i didn't even, i didn't even consider that now. That would be incredible. I think I was not aware of fish in 1994. I have to admit, I was, uh, I was,
1: I think, 10. That's fair. Katie, you've got to step up and claim this. You played a, uh, your family played a significant role in fish history by influencing the, the OJ show. (laughs) i'm going i'm gonna i'm gonna steal it this is gonna be mine there you go so um you mentioned you know you were 10 years old at the time um we usually like to talk to people about how you actually got into fish because most people don't have this journey of turning on the radio and hearing a fish song and being like you know ooh i love that this is going to be my favorite band now um a lot we find that a lot of people have to have some sort of a fish sherpa to get you into it so um how were you first exposed to to the band
3: you know, I've been trying a lot to think about what my first exposure was, and I, I, for some reason I can't remember it. I knew it was high school, and I, I think it was probably a boy I had a crush on, um, and I, he listened to it, and I decided that I would get into it in order to get closer to this, this very cute boy, um, I think, And then (laughs) I, I know that I ended up liking it a a ton and I became totally obsessed with it completely, you know, head over heels, bought um, all the albums that I could get my hands on, all the CDs that I could get my hands on. I think I, I owned uh, the entirety of Hampton Comes Alive. Um, and I bought all the, the studio albums, which I know was a big no-no in the beginning. And then I, and then I got into more of the live shows, um, and, uh, when I went to college, I listened to them so much that, um, my emo boyfriend at the time looked down on me and said, I was too much of a hippie. And I said, well, you like, you're like crying rock with girls with, with boys with long hair.
1: Oh my god! Awesome. I, I had the same exact thing happen. I had a girlfriend in high school and I went to college and got super into fish. And she was like, I don't even know you anymore. What's going on? But, um, do you remember when your first show was? Yeah, my first show was, I think, in, um, it was actually
3: a few years after that. I think it was like 2003. I, I didn't go to a show um, until college. And I remember feeling a little late to the game and um, just, but loving it, just being so completely um, uh, taken aback by the the community spirit of it all. I thought it was just, I mean, it was wild. Everybody was, you know, stoned and and more than that. And the whole place was like, you were hotboxing the forum in Los Angeles and Inglewood. But um, I remember thinking like everyone's so nice and the lights are so cool and the music is awesome. And how could you not love this band? And I, I just, I just fell even more deeply in love than I had been. And then they, then they went on hiatus. So they broke up or whatever it was. And I, I my heart was broken, so I had to start following Trey Anastasio around.
1: You, we probably suffered from the same thing. Was just right when we got into the band. They spent like you know two years apart, got back together, and then broke up for five years. So there's like key seeing the band when you're young and reckless kind of years they they, they didn't exist for us.
3: Yeah, unfortunately, not that not during the time where I could have just gotten in a car and traveled around the country right, and right. followed them. I didn't have like I didn't have those summers where I could just spend and dedicating my life to fish. And by the time that I w- would have had enough money or the wherewithal to do it, they were they had they had they had left my life. They had abandoned me. I was really bummed about it.
1: Yeah. And I think we've triangulated your first show is uh, Valentine's Day 2003 at the Forum.
3: Yep, it was it awesome.
4: was awesome that's a that's a cool show that yeah.
3: same it was a cool show yeah that same boyfriend that i um that told me that i was that i should follow the news was at that show with me and my girlfriend Danae, who i tried very hard to get to go to with uh go with me to a baker's dozen show and she and she declined she'd grown out of it
4: well that's too bad Ah, oh,
2: that is too bad
4: so um that th- that's a pretty good first show. Are there any memorable shows or, you know, peak experiences in your show-going history that um that stand out or maybe one uh, one where you you got it it as we like to say we tend to try to collect the peak moments for uh, or first peak moments from our our guests.
3: I wish I wish I could remember more of the specifics of the shows, but i don't I don't remember much of them this far down. Um, I remember the Trey at the Greek and and finding that to be to be a really good experience. I know there were a couple more shows after the Valentine's Day Show, I think one in San Diego. Um, but i I don't remember them specifically any longer. I did go to a couple Baker's dozen shows this year, and I remember them a little bit more vividly than I remember remember anything from fifteen years ago. I won't that's I won't fair. I won't divulge the reasons why I might not remember them. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly time, let's put it that way.
4: That that's a good reason. So You've committed yourself to a few other things over the time. Um so one thing pushes another thing out, as they say. Um do you have a you know, favorite era of the band or maybe a, a favorite show or song that you always go back to? I, I know you mentioned Billy Breathes.
3: I love Billy Breeze. I love, I love Rift. I think Rift is just, I just think it's a really tremendous song. Um, I, I love, I love the whole, the man who stepped into yesterday lore. I, I think ACDC Bag is just a great song that you, just, you can't stop singing along to. And I'm getting my, my seem to be stepkids into the lizards. The early stuff I like a lot. Um, uh, and then i i really like when they how was it is it which album oh hoist where they bring in the the um or the band is it not a band it's they uh a choir the ho- the yeah, they they the horns choir and
1: julius and the choir. yeah julius
3: yeah i love that oh
1: wolfman's oh, brother too there's there's a chorus on wolfman's brother i love wolfman's brother yes 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 yes
3: well i'm an equal opportunity fish lover i love all eras of it
4: well that's good Um, You you mentioned earlier uh, maybe some shame or recognizing that some people don't enjoy the records, the albums. But uh, I think that um, you should continue to own that. Uh, I love the albums, too. They're just they're a different thing. Um, And I think the band would love to hear that you like their albums because I think they. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I do, too. I, I think they're outstanding. So I think
3: the studio recording of Ron Boy is great.
1: That's
4: gorgeous. One of my favorite records.
1: Yeah. So, Katie, you mentioned that you made it to a couple of Baker's dozen shows. Um, what was your kind of, what nights did you make it to, and what was your overall impressions of those?
3: I made it to two of the of the thirteen. I confessed that I didn't get tickets till late, and two was about all I could afford by the time I, I bought tickets. Um, I got. Uh, I went to Hole, Donut Hole, and I went to
4: nice.
3: Boston Cream.
4: Oh, ooh. awesome! Good night. Great choices.
3: Yeah, I the the mashup of Boston and Cream. I just I thought it was
1: so good,
3: so good. I brought I brought my fiance to it. He's not a fish fan. He's not a jam band fan. In fact, he confessed to me, and I didn't know this about him, that he um, had never been to a concert before. I don't know how you go through thirty six <laughs> years of your life never having gone to a concert. Wow. But he's wow. actually he's a cool guy. He'd never been to a concert. And so he was not looking forward to this at all. And I, I totally, I, I guilt tripped him into it. I told him I was disappointed. He didn't want to share this with me. And so he he <laughs> begrudgingly came. I know if you were both disappointed, it's all over. Um, he begrudgingly came and he ended up having a, a total blast. I, he was dancing, dancing. Um, in a very awkward way, but dancing nonetheless, and he just had fun and he he said what I said after my first show, which was, "I can't believe what a fun community it is. it's like it's a it's a group experience to be there it's obviously it's about the music, but it's about everybody's reaction to the music, how everybody cheers in certain moments, and if you're new, you're like, how do they all know about this one little this one little riff in the guitar or this one little moment that everyone waits for, or this scream or or um you know the the John Fishman bringing out the um, the vacuum how do they all get so excited for it and he walked away saying that yes he will go to more concerts with me so i'm feeling very very victorious
2: that's amazing excellent it's that,
4: great success there um and that the, yeah i kind of lost my mind during that uh the Boston cream thing did he did he like that i imagine he was familiar with some of that material that was in that mashup
3: he loved it he sang along. Cool. He loved it. Tony, did you like bought <laughs> the Boston cream mashup? He said there were some nice iterations to it, but it really just made him want to listen to the original. <laughs> uh, <yes.
4: laughs> That's fair. Perfect. That's fair. It sounds like a, a pretty good first show success.
1: So and if if uh, if our research is correct, Tony is also a, a journalist on CBS, correct?
3: Tony's a journalist. He is a uh, CBS correspondent. He does a lot for the morning show and for Sunday morning. And he is um, a beautiful writer. He can put together um, a narrative in a way that I've uh, I can only dream of doing. And he's a good storyteller. And he's handsome. And he's a wonderful fiance. And I got very lucky.
1: So does that mean that we're going to get to see fish fish references on NBC and CBS now?
3: Tony, we make a fish <laughs> reference on CBS one day. Tony, will you make a fixer reference on CBS
2: one Yeah. <laughs> no, no, com- no commitment there. <laughs> He's, slipping, refusing. The, He's refusing. He's uh, <laughs> refusing.
4: It's getting rid of slipping into that quiet dignity of the Sunday morning show, which is a... Uh,
2: let insane. me tell you
3: something. I'm gonna I'm gonna look over one of his scripts one of these days, and I will
2: get it in on on his behalf. <laughs> nice, perfect, wonderful.
3: I'll just suggest that he won't even know it's a fish lyric, and he'll end up liking the line, and he'll keep it. And then I'll, I'll alert you guys, and we can we can gloat about it online. <laughs> perfect.
2: So so Katie, let's let's shift gears a little bit and and talk about your work and and where it over over overlaps intersects with fish. Um, we want to talk a little bit about this um amazing phenomenon um of you and a couple others um you know trading trading fish references online. We have a few questions about that, but Jonathan wants to I think first read read a little something before we get into the questions. Jonathan, do you want to do that? Yeah, sure. So, Katie, we um
4: we asked Tom to join us and he was not able to be on the line with us today, but he sent a little note for you. So, Tom Marshall that is. So, I'm going to read this and um bear with me here for a moment um katie i've been wanting to talk to you but now that i have the chance i've got a blank space where my mind should be i will say thanks for infusing fish lyrics into your newscast i've been relying on msnbc for some time now to provide comfort comfort and refuge from the insanity but sanity never came my way and it seems like we're not approaching a rift anymore but rather we've fallen into a deep well by the way, I appreciate the lyrics from Driver that no one else seemed to notice in your most recent fish cast. when he makes decisions I don't have to wait. That was about a seemingly driverless car. We could make the same analogy about a certain fluffhead-in-chief who runs like a junkyard dog with a brain of brass, but let's not. I hope we see you with a ticket stub in your hand at Dick's, since we missed you at Baker's Dozen. Hope you can leave the news desk. Come step outside your room. We want you to be happy. Sincerely, Tom Marshall. Oh,
3: I love that. I need him to, I need him to look over my script and add a little bit more pizzazz into them because he just weaved those in in a way that I think I couldn't possibly have matched. Wow. That's incredible.
2: Well, I know I know that Tom, I think he wants to talk to you further and, and maybe you and you and Tom can have a longer conversation um, at some point. Cause he, he really wanted to, to chat with you. Um, so, so where did this where did this come from? Where did the fish references start? How did they start? Was it like a holdover from I know that some there were journalists like sporadically in the past who had done this but but much less um frequently and I think, you know, effectively, but what just how did it start for you?
0: So
3: I think I I made a reference on social media um out of the blue, not on on the show, just kind of um out of nowhere and uh, Jake Sherman or somebody, I think it was Jake Sherman or somebody from this, this group called Journofish, fish, which I didn't realize existed, found me and said, Oh my God, I didn't realize you were a fish fan. You know, we have a group. And I said, what are you talking about? So there's this group of journalists, a lot of political journalists, Jake Sherman at Politico is one of them. Robert Costa, believe it or not, um, of the Washington post is one of them as well. Mm. um, and these all these buttoned-up people who are who are covering these very serious topics, who who have this this crazy email chain where all they do is talk about how they how much they love fish and how they got started with it, and they share links to their favorite shows. And there was meetups that were organized for the Baker's dozen. And so I got to know more people in the in the world and in the business from this from this group. And I I, I fully understood how much of a of a fish fan, uh, Sherman was. So he was always on my air. And one day I just, I dropped a fish lyric on him and it totally, totally took him aback. You can see his, his face got really red and oh, no, 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 this is not how it started. I was doing, um, for a little while on my show, we had to do these, these very silly, um, online polls where we'd say, you know, like the, the, I forgot what the what the branding was, but the question of the day, you know, do you X, X Y, or Z? And I I one day got really I just got really bored of doing them, and I got really bored of trying to make them interesting. And so I added a few fish lyrics. One of them was "Run like an antelope out of control." To this, to it was a subject about legalizing marijuana, which I thought was appropriate. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and that got me into journo fish and kind of made a little bit of a wave on social media. And then Jake and I traded emails and I realized how much fan Jake was. And, um, I dropped one on him on the air and he just totally, he got beat red and he managed to pull, I think bouncing around the room out of his, out of his hat, which I thought was so impressive. And then it became a thing where we would just go back and forth. Whenever he was on the air, uh, one of us would try to slip one or two in and throw the other off their game, which was, I think a little bit of, um, you know, Russian roulette or, or high stakes poker or walking a, a wire because we're doing these pretty serious topics and we're trying to, we're trying to meddle with our uh, fiddle with each other, but it, it, it it kind of took off and people started paying attention. And, and then we started thinking at the very least, we're getting more people to pay closer attention to what's going on in Congress, what's going on with healthcare, what's going on with um, uh, the various legislation that, that the Republicans and Donald Trump are trying to get passed. So it was, it was fun and informative and we kept doing it. And for the Baker's dozen show, um, I, I am, um, in the words of of the Funyan, Blue uh, jump the shark when I did 13, um, 13 fish references on Meet the Press one day. Uh, and then I decided that I probably should take a small break for a little while to be determined when it, when it reappears.
1: Have you gotten any feedback from um, the higher ups at NBC? Do they realize what you're doing and are they giving you thumbs up or thumbs down on it?
3: Now, you know, one of my bosses, after I, I inserted into the poll questions, called and he was like, oh, God, Katie's having so much fun today. I love it. And then my EP was like, yeah, she's inserting fish lyrics. He's like, oh, oh all right. Um, no, no one no one up, up in the upper echelons of the company, no one in the front office was, was bothered by it at all. I don't know how many of them noticed it, um, but marketing noticed it because there's a bunch of fish fans in marketing mm. and they wanted to put together this whole, like um, this whole ad campaign uh, based around it. I think they're still working on it. They were thinking that they wanted to try and, you know, do a raffle for fish tickets, but it, it, that didn't really pan out, but it, I haven't gotten any negative feedback. I think people like, uh, I think they, they understand that it's, you know, it's all in good fun and it's, it's not taking away from the topic and it's getting a lot of uh, positive attention. And also, we have to cover such serious subjects every day. It's nice to allow us to have a moment of, of pleasure, find a way yeah. to, to keep it interesting.
4: I was just going to say, it's, um, it, in addition to maybe attracting attention from some people who might not have been watching uh, or paying close attention, that also it's got to be nice to ins- insert a little bit of humor into what can be very serious business
3: absolutely and and not in a not in a uh, egregious way and not in a disrespectful way but in a hey look there's a lot going on in our country right now and there's it, it sometimes can feel overwhelming or it can feel hard to digest and you may you might want to turn the television off and not pay attention and if there's a reason that you're turning it on and listening to to you know two reporters talk about the CBO score of the latest health care bill and how many people might lose coverage from that twenty two million whatever it is, and how much it might uh, take away to the deficit. I mean, that's important. It's important stuff. and and all too often, civics and and current events and and uh, politics and policies is kind of hard for people to understand. It's hard for them to get into unless it's deeply personal and even when it's deeply personal. You kind of, it's so complicated and so, and the terms are so obtuse that if there's a way to get people to pay attention, because they happen to like the lyrics that are being thrown around, I think that's a good thing.
2: I think it's really cool that you're, that the the boss or whoever you, that was that you described um, the reaction was um, it looks like you're having a lot of, she's having a lot of fun. Cause that's a really, that's cool that that is, that was the first reaction because it's obvious that, you know, people appreciate when they see that, you know, the people who are hosting these shows are actually enjoying themselves and not, not taking themselves too seriously or trying to be too serious. It's, it's authenticity, you know, which is really, really valued in this age, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, listen, I am never going to be someone. who I'm not, um, I can't, if you, if you tried to button me up or, tried to stick me into the mold of what you think an anchor reporter should be, I would, I would throw a temper tantrum or I would just, or I would, uh, or I would choke to death. I, I, I don't work well when you constrain me or you try to make me into something else. I, and I think the reason that so many people, um, were drawn to my, to my coverage and my reporting during the campaign Was because, you know, oftentimes I'd forget a word or I would, um, you could tell how I came to a conclusion. You could tell that I wasn't just packaging into, packaging the the report into um, political or Washingtonian terms. I was a normal human being who was trying to convey what was really going on. And I'm going to try to be that way on the air too. And that naturally will include from time to time some goofy fish lyrics. Which I think can be very profound and deep, in a surprising and unexpected way.
4: Absolutely, we we definitely agree with that, and I think the net result has been positive. People respond well to sincerity and real people on the screen. Um, Katie, if we could, with, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, again, it's called "Unbelievable: My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History," and it comes out on September twelfth on, I think it's Harper Collins, uh, Day Street Books. So, we wanted to start by asking about the circumstances that led you being uh, tasked with covering the Trump campaign. Um, oh
3: gosh, okay. So, so you should you should buy the book because I'll I'll give you this story and and. Real detail.
2: Everyone should buy the book. Everyone oh, should absolutely.
3: Everyone should buy the book. Go Re- out and buy the book. The book. <laughs> I promise it's a worthwhile read. It's not dry political analysis. It's just a truly unbelievable story. Um, anyway, so I was living in London. I had just um, been been moved to London by my bosses to be one of NBC's foreign correspondents, which was um, something of a dream for me because you you're base. Uh, in London, and you get to travel anywhere in the world. I mean, the whole world is your playground. Everything except the United States. So in the nine months that I had been there, I think I went to 20 or something countries, Um, everywhere from Italy and and Budapest to uh, Surabaya, Indonesia, and uh, Thailand. Just great, great experiences. And I came home nine months in to reconnect with my bosses Um, and because a a boy made a wish to the Make-A-Wish Foundation to shadow me for a day. And so I came home to do that, which was an amazing experience and a huge honor. And I also came to remind people in New York that I still exist because sometimes when you work overseas, um, they can forget about you when international news is not breaking. And I was just standing around the newsroom when um, somebody said, You know, Macy's and Univision have ju- uh, just dropped Donald Trump. And this is turning into a big story, the fallout from his announcement. This was a couple days after his announcement or a week after his announcement. And they said, We should put a reporter on the story who's available. And a friend of mine, Brad Jaffe, who works on Nightly News, volunteered me. He said, Katie's not doing anything. <laughs> she can do it. And I. Yeah. And I said, yeah, 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 sure. I can do that. No problem. And the next day it was continuing. The story continued and they had me on it again. I mean, these were not, these were not a block stories. This was not the lead story of the newscast at the time. This was after the first commercial break. So it was an interesting story, but it wasn't the most important story of the day. Um, So I did it a couple days and then our, our president of NBC news had this crazy foresight where she said, this man is is at the very least throwing a wrench into the plans of the Republican Party. We've got to, we've got to cover him. We've got to put a correspondent on him. And at the time nobody thought that he was a serious contender. And so there was a lot of pushback in Washington about, you know, why would we put one of our big deal political correspondents on this, on this joke? I mean, he's not going to last very long. And so they said, well, well you know what? why don't we put Katie on it? Because <laughs> I'm a political neophyte, and Donald oh, Trump man. is a political neophyte. Why not? Um, and that's how I got on the Donald Trump campaign. It was – it'll be six weeks tops, and then you go back to London.
2: Wow. Well, and
3: it ended up being times. 510 days.
4: So um... – 510 days. Wow. You, you, I I can't imagine why you would know that exact number, but (laughs) um, uh, well, at what point in that time did you realize that, you know, not only are you reporting about something that is an ever increasingly big deal, but that you wanted to write a book about it?
3: Well, I mean, I don't know why you think it was a big deal. It was such a normal and and traditional campaign when, you know, nothing out of of the, (laughs) the usual happened. And everyone was so polite and calm and it was a real snore.
4: <laughs> it shows what a professional you are <laughs> yeah. that you can say that, get all the way through that sentence without yeah. laughing. That's yeah, true.
3: Oh, I think I collapsed at the end of. Um When did I know I was going to write a book? Yeah, everyone, When you start following a campaign, everyone, you know, kind of whispers in your ear, you know, take notes, you know, you might want to write a book about this one day. Um, and you say, oh yeah, sure. Whatever. And, but it percolates, you know, it sits in the back of your head and you wonder, you know, is this something that people might be interested in? And with the Trump campaign, you know, it just got crazier and wilder and more unbelievable by the day. And and it got to the point where my producer and I would look at each other and we're just like, you know, nobody would ever believe that this is happening. You know, that, that great story about, um, about Bill Murray legend about bill murray you know bill murray will like put his hands over your eyes on the on a street corner and you turn around and look oh my god it's bill murray and he'll whisper at you nobody will ever believe you and you wonder maybe (laughs) maybe that did actually start with a real story but it just it, it that's what this campaign felt like nobody will ever believe you that this was happening and um i i started really thinking about it seriously i think in December January that's when i really started taking late november december that's when i really started taking copious notes um about what was happening day to day and um i talked to i talked to a book agent early on and i kind of gave her this this idea i had i, I probably didn't sell it very well i didn't really know what i was doing and she was like yeah you know maybe you could like do an ebook or something and i'm like okay yeah. For you. <laughs> I'm not doing a new <laughs> book. <laughs> um, and, uh, I kind of just put it on the back burner cause my days were so insane, but I kept taking notes and, uh, I looked out because, um, Marie Claire was looking for somebody to do a first person essay. And the editor said that she found me on Twitter and she thought my, my tweets were, were interesting and funny and also terrifying. Um, So she asked me to do it. And I said, sure. How do you write a 3000 word essay for a glossy magazine? And uh, (laughs) I mean, do you want a minute 30 script for nightly news? I'd give you that. Um, And she kind of, you know, she walked me through it and it, it was, I thought it was good. I didn't think it was so good, but it, it, it really made a, a good wave. And from there I got some, Inquiries from book agents and from book editors, and I ended up uh, getting in touch and and really connecting with Julia Shafitz at HarperCollins, and she she said, you know, this could really be something. This could be a, a modern version or something of a modern version of the campaign classic, which is this book called Boys in the Bus. If you if you cover a political campaign, you read this book,
1: mm-hmm. and if mm-hmm. you
3: don't, you should read it because it's just a great book. Um, it's about the reporters and their crazy antics on the campaign trail in 1970. And it's, it's wild. I mean, the stories back then, there's some that's, some of it's exactly the same as it always was. Much of it though, is just so much more wild than anything we could ever do nowadays. I mean, there's, there's one great line in the book where they, uh, talk about the end of the campaign and everyone had been having affairs throughout this whole time. And, and one of the flight attendants on the press Plane realized or discovered that her paramour was married, and she ended up suing him for illegal acts committed over the state of Iowa. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Which is> amazing. <laughs> what an incredible story. I wish we had anything that even compares
1: to that. Um,
2: Boys on the Bus was a sort of a, not companion, but a corollary to the Fear and Loathing, right? That was, they were both about the 72 campaign, just from different perspectives.
3: He mm-hmm. got a lot of help from um from Hunter S. Thompson on the book.
2: In yeah, fact, Hunter S. So.
3: Thompson wrote the the new forward. It's a great book. It's a really great book. It'll teach you a ton about the news business and a ton about how everybody's always hated the media.
1: Yeah. So obviously <laughs> we want people to read the book to get the full inside story, but um how did your kind of personal relationship with Trump specifically, not even his people kind of evolve over the course of the campaign. And, you know, if for for those who don't know, I mean, there was a point at which he was calling you out during a rally as little Katie Tur. I mean, is, at that point, are you feeling fear? Are you excited that you're a part of it? Like what's going on at that point? Well, I was
3: not excited to be a part of it because journalists don't really want to be a part of the story and they certainly don't want to be a part of the story in that way. Mm -hmm. But um, what you don't know, because most people kind of realized who I was around that point or even a little bit later when he kept calling me out. Um, But he had been calling me out since day one. I mean, the very first rally that I went to on June 30th in 2015, I had never met Donald Trump in my life. And I'm standing about, I don't know, 30 yards from him um, at a a private home in the backyard. He's giving this very small rally around a backyard pool before he took off and had these, you know, 5,000-person rallies. And he is going on the, the rifts that he that he had been going on with talking about immigrants and talking about building a wall and talking about how he gets great standing ovations from everywhere everywhere he goes and how he would be able to fix NBC news because we were I think we dropped his Miss Universe pageant at that point. And I'm just standing there in the back. I'm typing away what he's saying on my phone, tweeting literally just tweeting what he's saying. Um, and I hear Katie, you're not even paying attention. And I, I don't, <laughs> I don't look up because I don't know why, why would he be talking to me? And my producer at the time gave me a hard nudge in the side. And I looked up and I realized that, that all the other reporters and everybody standing around the pool and Donald Trump himself are all looking at me. And I'm just like, he's like, you're not paying attention. And I, I, you know, I said it in this, like that sort of like ingest, but slightly like Angry way that he has, and I remember just thinking to myself, "This is part of his act. It's Donald Trump." And I screamed back out, "I'm tweeting what you're saying." I just let him have it, and he he looked at me and he nodded and said, "Okay, go on then." <laughs> but I mean, he he knew who I he knew who I was from from day one. He he singled me out at the very beginning. So you know, I sat down with him. We had we had an interview. I think he assumed it would be a softball interview. I don't know, you know, I don't know why he would make that assumption. I'm sure people could guess why he would make that assumption. Um, And it wasn't. And he got very angry about it. And afterwards, he, he said some choice things to me, which you can read the book. Um, And it, it, it evolved from there. And it was just a very, very bizarre relationship that was up and down and it was friendly and angry. It was, Um, Aggressive and um, charming, I guess. At times, he would try to he tried to cultivate me, and when that didn't work, he would attack me. Um, His campaign was um, let's call it interesting. His campaign was interesting. (laughs) The people he staffed on his campaign, which you can read about in the book, Um, (laughs) and and. You know, it, it got it got aggressive. But the longer we went, the more aggressive and the angrier he got. And he realized that he could really use the press as a as a foil, and if, in a successful way, he could demonize us in order for his supporters to like him more. And it also inoculated him from any real criticism. Mm-hmm. So that the day that he called me out at the Muslim ban rally was a day where he's. Talking about banning an entire religion of people from coming into this country, at that point the c- campaign was unclear about whether he would even try to even allow Muslims who were American citizens who happened to be on vacation to come back into the country, or Muslims who were serving in the American military, whether they would be able to come back into the country. They hadn't thought any of this out, and and the supporters that showed up to this rally, we interviewed one after another, and nobody expressed any concern about it. They, they at the at the at the most we got one woman, woman to say that she had to think about it more, but we just had person after person say what a good idea it was, and one veteran said it was a slap in the face to let Muslims into this country. To all veterans, so it was a very tense atmosphere and a very scary atmosphere. And so when he called me out, it was on national television. It was front of, in front of this this angry crowd, and it was nerve wracking. It was it was it was intimidating um, and secret service ended up having to walk me to my car, which was parked with the rest of the Trump supporters. Wow. Um, yeah. So it, it, it was, there were points where we thought, and that was just one of many. And there there were points where we thought we really believed that somebody was a reporter was going to get hurt, really hurt, if not killed.
4: I mean, we had, we got that sensation watching from home. So I can't imagine it. I can only imagine it was, you know, well amplified when you were actually in the moment there.
3: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was at times I'm not, I'm not painting all Trump supporters with a broad brush at all. Um, And there were lovely people that I met along the way um, who were, who were not aggressive and who would come up to you and say, you know, we, we really believe in what you're doing and thank you for what you're doing. It, It just,
1: it was a mixed bag. Yeah. Well, so just a couple of questions, and we want to bring it back to some some happier ground. Um, I remember very distinctly seeing you standing in front of the Flynn Theater in Burlington. Um, yeah. On the campaign thinking, oh, my God, how is Donald Trump going in there and going to, to – you know, decimate this house of fish where they've had several amazing, legendary shows. Little did I know that you were actually a fan. Um, but you mentioned to us, uh, before when we were kind of going back and forth that, um, there was a little bit of a fish connection in, in the book into your story on the campaign. So I was hoping you could just share a little bit about that and maybe how the band's music got you by. Yeah. So
3: the, the, the Flynn and, um, that Vermont, that Burlington rally. I was interviewing the, the chief of police walking down the street, talking about the crowd that has had assembled. They had they had said that the um, I I don't remember how many um, what the capacity of that theater is, but they had they had far outsold it by many 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 thousands of tickets. And I remember the the sheriff or the the chief of police said to me, if this were a fish concert, I would have shut it down. And I was like, I love this guy. (laughs) We put that on the air. Um, It was just a great. It was just amazing to be up there, and and weird to be up there with Donald Trump. But um, so the end of the campaign, it was getting hard to sleep. It was getting hard to relax. I remember I would sit down, and my knee would be shaking the entire time. I was gritting my teeth all the time. I was hunching my shoulders. I you know, I, I ended up having to, to take Ambien to go to bed because I just I couldn't get my mind to stop because every day there was another story and it was just, the campaign was, was relentless and the people at his rallies would scream at you, just get in your face and they would give you the finger and they'd tell you what a disgrace you were. And on top of it all, his rally soundtrack was, might've been fun the first three or four rallies, but at, 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 you know, rally number 205, I had heard enough Billy Joel. I didn't want to hear Billy Joel again. And then he started playing Backstreet Boys and there was Nessun Dorma by Pavarotti and it would just, they'd play it at this ear splitting um, uh, decibels. I mean, it was just, it was so loud and they would do it at like 95 decibels or a hundred decibels and you couldn't think. And I needed to relax. So I looked through my phone and I had very little music loaded on my phone because it was, a, it was a new phone and I just didn't have time to deal with it. And I had nothing. And I said, you know what? I need, I need something relaxing. I need something calm. I'm going to download Billy Breeze. Because I remember when I, was, when I was 17, I just thought Billy Breeze was a great soundtrack for life. I remember turning it on in my car and my headphones. And looking around and thinking, what a beautiful world we live in, and what an interesting movie this would be. Like I'm thinking about everyone walking down the street and what their lives must be like, and how they might be in the the starring role, whatever movie their uh, their lives are. And I, um, so I downloaded it, hoping to get some some of that same pleasure and some of that same peace um, at a Trump rally. And I, I did. I would stick my earphones, my earbuds into my ear as as deeply as they went. They were noise canceling, and I would play it. I'd play, you know, like Swept Away, or Prince Caspian, or Fee uh, at, at the top of as loud as I could get it, um, and the Trump rallies were transformed. I mean, I remember just walking around with this blissed out smile on my face in a great mood, just smiling at people. People are screaming in my face and I'm just smiling at the back. Like I just remember <laughs> finding, finding a real sense of, of happiness and I was probably delirious in a lot of ways, but it worked for me. And um, they, they really, the the album and the band just, saved me at the end of the campaign. I survived because I was able to calm down and I was able to sleep and I was able to escape even in these, in, 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 in the moment of, of, of being surrounded by people who who didn't think that I was doing a worthwhile service for the country. Um, And I talk about in the book, I talk about these, these interesting moments where I'm, you know, kind of daydreaming about a different life. And you can hear fish lyrics in the back of my head, uh, which was interesting because I, I put it in the book and I loved it. And then the lawyer at Harper Collins was like, you can't put music lyrics in a book. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, well, it's copyright. And I said, Oh, I didn't know that. And they said, well, I, you know, if it's just two or three lyrics from a song, that's no problem. And I said, Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's, this song swept away. And then I realized that the entire song is for lyrics. And they're like, you can't print the, you can't <laughs> reprint the entire song in your book. You have to take it out. And I'm like, I can't take it out. It's important. It's an important part of the story. And they said, you know, fine. If you leave it in and you get sued, this is on you. And I remember thinking, oh my God, you know, what if I get sued by fish? Are they going to get upset about this? And how much money could I possibly lose? And I decided to take the risk. And then I panicked one night. The book was due at 10 a.m. and at 3 a.m. I started to panic. And I remember um, I emailed you guys, didn't
1: I? That's right. Yeah, you did. Yeah,
3: I did. I emailed you guys and I was like, do you know anybody at Fish? And and you emailed me right back and I emailed. Um, who was it again? Was it? Was it uh,
1: I forgot. Uh, probably would have been Kevin Shapiro with the band.
3: Yeah, it was Kevin. Kevin emailed back almost immediately and put me in touch with the one of the Fish lawyers. And she emailed back by 7 a.m. the next morning saying, yeah, sure, no problem. Use it, go ahead, I'll I'll send you the paperwork. And I thought, what other band is that cool where you can email them at at 3 a.m., they respond, and then they say yes immediately.
2: (laughs) That is great. That's pretty great. Well, we obviously... We want to encourage everyone to, to check out the book, and um, we're looking forward to checking it out as well. Um, Katie, I wanted to just end, and you've been more than generous with your time. I just had a question about your take on sort of where journalism is going, because you're in the middle of this um, evolution, I think, in terms of, of course, politics, but also news and the field of journalism and the craft of reporting. And I just read today that NBC's Snapchat sort of show experiment has been really successful. And um, it's just interesting to think about all these different ways that, that journalism is changing. What do you What do you see changing for your field or, or over the next couple of years?
3: Well, I think it is we're at a crossroads. I think we can go in, in one of two directions. I think a lot of this country doesn't believe us, doesn't want to believe us, thinks that we are um, – you know, a bunch of liberals who aren't telling the truth, and that's very hard. How do you, how do you uh, get back your credibility? How do you convince people that your your voices are important and it's integral to the functioning of a democracy? Um, and then at the same time, we have uh, another portion of the country who who is relying very heavily on us, and relying very heavily on us to to tell the truth because we don't have a government. An administration that um, tells the truth or a president that tells the truth. Um, so it's difficult, but I do think that we have a great opportunity to reach people in new ways. Not only do you have cable news, which I'm a part of, and if you are interested in politics, you turn on your cable news channel and you mm-hmm. develop a relationship with the people you see every day. You develop um, uh, hopefully a trust and a bond with them. So you you know you know who they are, you know where they're coming from and you know they haven't burned you in the past. So that's good and that's one way to do it. Um, the other way to do it is to meet people uh, where they are, meet them on their device, meet them on the social media app that they might use um, and meet them just physically. And And I think what's wonderful about being in the field as a reporter and even being at those Trump rallies was when somebody would get in your face or ask you about your job, you could stand there and calmly try to explain to them what you do. And often, you know, sometimes it doesn't work and they still think you're a liar and whatever. But other times you could, you could show them that you're a human being. You could show them that you are working really hard to try and get to the bottom of things. And if you're able to build that trust, if you're able to show these people that, or people in general, that you're not, um, you're not some robot. You're not getting directions on high. You're not trying uh, to sabotage um, a, a political campaign or a political party or a you know, one side of an argument for your own personal gain. Um, that helps. And that's good for it's good for democracy. It's good for media. And I think if you're if you're going to put it in visual terms, if you're climbing up a mountain or about halfway up and either we. We look out over the, over the, um, the rift (laughs) and we fall or we keep on climbing. And I think what the news media is doing is we've decided to keep on climbing. And I think we have, I think we have a bright future.
2: Awesome. That's, that's helpful perspective and really interesting to think about. Um, well, um, I know Matt, Matt wanted to throw one very brief question at you and then we're going to, we're going to let you get back to your day.
1: Katie, what do we have to do to get you to throw the Helping Friendly book in as a reference one day?
3: Oh, I, I don't think you have to do much, honestly.
1: Perfect. So, <laughs> think, so you're saying you'll do it? I
3: think, you, I think you just have to say you should do it. And I'll yes, do it. you should How do You should do How it. Should do it. Here's what I want. Here's what I want for the listeners of this podcast. I would like you to throw me lyrics that you want me to get into the show and on, on days where I can. I will get them into the show. If you think there's a if there's a topic that we're talking about or something in the news that you know we're going to be talking about, give me your best line, and I will find a way to get into the show.
1: <laughs> and what's the best way for people to send those to you? Twitter. Twitter. Okay, It's
3: my only social media.
1: Excellent, excellent.
2: This is great. Well, Katie, we we appreciate you. We that's the deal. We will um, we'll we'll make that deal. We accept. We accept the terms and we will ask our listeners to, to, to do the same. I'm sure that people, you know, these crazy obsessive fish fans, um, you know, we're happy to think and talk about fish all the time. Um, just speaking for myself, I think, I don't think there's many others out there, but um, we <laughs> we do appreciate this, um, how you've sort of engaged with the community over, over Twitter. And, and I think you've already done that a bunch and that's, it's really cool to see. And um, nice to watch that evolve on TV.
3: Yeah, I love it. I love it. And and listen, you guys are I wish I was as educated in the world of fish as a lot of a lot of you guys are and a lot of the, the fans online are. And I I'm learning every day and I can't cannot wait to go see a show uh back here in New York for New Year's. So I will see you guys there you might be going if I, I'm not able to get to Dick's,
2: even though I really do want to go understandable well we know that um once once this comes out your your book will be out um which comes out on september 12th um unbelievable my front row seat to the craziest campaign in american history so we we hope everyone checks out the book and katie we really appreciate you taking all the time today and talking to us about fish and politics and journalism and everything else it's been a really fun conversation
3: guys thank you take care of your shoes
4: (laughs) thank you very much katie
1: thanks katie
3: thanks guys Listen wherever you get podcasts.
0: Katie tried, I was halfway crucified. I was on the other side of no tomorrow. You walked in, and my life beat again just when i'd spent the last piastre i could borrow all night long we would sing that stupid song it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper